This message is part of the series, Asking for a Friend, what we all think, but think we shouldn't. The entire series can be found at fromthefray.com slash asking. All right, welcome back to Asking for a Friend, uh, week seven. We're walking through Ecclesiastes together. This is our seventh week. This should be a fun week. I think it's a fun message. So far, um, we've been following along as Solomon kind of leads us on this winding journey through partially his memoirs, uh, telling us stuff that he's did in life. I did this. That was fun. I did that. That was a bad idea. He's kind of given us some tales and some, some wisdom and a little bit of commentary on a bunch of stuff. Chapter 7, he switches up his narrative. He switches up his approach and kind of gives us a staccato burst of a bunch of seemingly random statements, a bunch of advice that really looks like it came from a whole bunch of uh, fortune cookies or bumper stickers. And while it seems random, I think we'll find that it isn't. It's not random at all, because what chapter 7 is, is a, is a collection of more general universal advice that we will find works in every situation. So far, Solomon has given us focused advice on topics like sex and careers and money and relationships and depression and hopelessness and entertainment. Very specific advice. Now he zooms back and he starts painting with a, a, a broad brush. And he does that as if to say, if all of those topics so far have not helped you out and you still don't know what to do, if you're, if you're still saying the question for this week, what do I do when I don't know what to do? then perhaps chapter 7 will help you get unstuck. It'll, it'll help us when we're saying, you know, i got good intentions, I want to do the right thing, but I don't know what that right thing is. What do I do when I don't know what to do? Chapter 7 will kind of get us out of a pit and, and back on proper direction. Because these are questions, this is guidance that we're going to get today that will work in, in every, every situation. All right, that said, let's just jump right in. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, starting in uh, verse 1. A good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume, and the day you die is better than the day you're born. It's better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for laughter has a, or for sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a foolish person thinks only about having a good time. All right, Solomon is going to give us four better than statements. This is better than that. Here's the first one. He tells us that a good reputation is better than getting ahead. Good reputation, at the end of the day, that's going to be better than getting ahead. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Well, ask yourself, which of these is going to help me get a better reputation? Which choice, which path, which decision? I don't know what to do, but at least I know I want to emerge from this situation with my reputation intact. Solomon says that guidance will work for you in every situation. And he talks about perfume here. What he says here is perfume was, uh, was difficult to, to, uh, to buy, to, to get, to maintain, to have it. It was expensive. Perfume was expensive. It wasn't like today. We can go into like a 7-Eleven, you know, a gas station bathroom, put a few quarters in a machine and get a squirt of smelly good stuff. It wasn't like that back then. If you wanted to smell good like perfume, you had to have a lot of money. You had to be able to afford it. Solomon's saying, nothing wrong with that, right? Perfume's a status symbol. It means I've, I've arrived, uh, I'm, I matter, I'm, I'm kind of a big deal, I'm important. Smell me and, and smell how good I am at life. That's what perfume did. Solomon's saying, there's really nothing wrong with wanting to smell good, but if you smell good because you wear perfume and your reputation stinks, it's not going to do you any good. 
you're not going to have any benefit from smelling good. In other words, if, if every time your name comes up, people just roll their eyes, right? If they're like, yeah, remember Tawana? Yeah, I remember Tawana. Ugh, yeah, I remember her. Man, she's still around? If, if when sitting around chatting, every time people start to talk about you, it causes them to, to roll their eyes because your reputation is that smelly, it doesn't matter what kind of perfume you put on. It doesn't matter how much you can afford. Yeah, I remember that guy. He made rank. He got promoted. He won some awards. But he was kind of a jerk. He never cared about anybody. Well, those awards don't do any good. Those awards cannot overpower how smelly your reputation is. It doesn't matter how many bottles of perfume you can afford. Because when you die, that perfume does you no good anymore. You're as poor as the common beggar the minute you die because you can't take it with you. The only thing that's left once you die is not your perfume, it's your reputation. It's your reputation. What people say about you and think about you, that's what endures long after you die. Not all, all your possessions and your perfume and, and your expensive stuff. Once you die, your reputation is all you have. Solomon says the day you die, and, and that's better than the day you're born. Why would he say that? Well, for a Christian, we get it, right? At least in theory, we get because. For us, Christians, dying is, is a graduation. It's, uh, it's the reward, it's to move on. But, but everyone, whether you're a Christian or not, can understand birth is about potential. Birth, is, birth and, and babies, especially little babies that don't talk back and just sit there and sleep a lot. We look at you know, newborn babies and, and birthdays and think, this, there's so much potential there. We can do anything here with this baby. This baby can grow up to be anything the baby wants to be. They're, that's great. Birthdays and babies are about potential, but death is about fulfillment. Death and funerals remind us that there's something even better than anything we can build down here. That's why Solomon is telling us that you can learn more from a funeral than a birthday party. And the best example of that is Easter. All right? Track with me, because the two most important Christian holidays are Christmas and Easter. Those are the biggest ones. Christmas is about, it's a birthday. It's about potential. Easter is a funeral but it's about fulfillment. And there's no comparison between the two as to which one of those is more important. Easter wins every time. As Christians, we are Easter people. Seven days a week, Easter is all we have to stand on. Solomon also tells us here in this verse about um, you know, building a good reputation. He says that we can learn more from sorrow than we can from laughter. And if you question that, and it sounds a little weird, I get it, but think about the kind of movies that we watch. Everybody likes a comedy. Everybody likes to laugh. But if you compare a comedy to a tragedy, which one of those has more of an enduring effect on you once you leave the movie theater? And with the comedy, once the laughs are done, it's done. But tragedies, for better or worse, those movies, those plot lines, they can get embedded in our mind and stick with us for quite a while. Nobody, nobody likes tragedies. That would be weird. But we all can admit that tragedies in our lives, those are the moments when we really grew, when we learned, when we develop. The tragedies are the ones who did that for us. And that's because, sticking with Solomon's theme here, you build a reputation by how you respond during the tragedies. That's where your reputation comes from. Nobody really cares how you act when you're winning. Because it's very easy to act well when you're winning and when you're on top. It's easy to do a victory dance in the end zone because you got a touchdown. But people are looking much more closely to see how you react to a setback, to a fumble, to a, a loss or a, or a tragedy. And as we said last week, those are the only moments when you really know if you trust God or not. 
is during the tragedies. You can't really answer that question unless you're in a tragedy or you've, you've gone through them. Because when you have plenty of food on the table looking at you, you don't need to trust God. The food's right there in front of you. When the table is empty, that's the only time you can know whether you believe and trust that he's going to put the food on the table when you need to. Tragedies are the only time that can come to the surface, and we can build a reputation of being a, a, a faithful, God-honoring person. Wise people know this. Solomon says they know this, and their decisions are guided by building a solid name that's going to endure long after they die. It's not about a bunch of bottles of perfume and a bunch of cars in the barn. It's about what kind of a name is going to endure when I leave. Because your name, listen, your name says a lot about you. When people hear your name, things come to mind. Maybe they're good. Hopefully they are. Maybe they're bad. What does your name say about you when people hear your name? I tell my kids all the time, your name, your last one, that means something. If you're a mistake kid, that means you act differently. Every morning, to reinforce that, I make my kids, every morning, get up and, and go through this chore chart here. Every morning they get a new sheet, looks identical to this one, it's color-coded, it's got all the chores they have to do, room by room. But before they go out and do their chores, they get together and they have a little prayer time, a little, a little Bible time, a little exercise together. It's nothing impressive, they're not doing like burpees and front back goes or lifting weights. But it gets them in the habit of exercising in the morning. And then the last thing they do before they separate to do their chores is that I make them go down here to the bottom of this page and they have to out loud recite as a team of kids these five pillars. These Massey pillars, they say them every morning out loud. Massey's don't say, that's not my job. Massey's don't walk past a problem. Massey's clean up their messes. Massey's ask for help and offer to help. If we need help, we ask. Hey man, can you help me out? And when we can't help, we offer. Hey man, can I help you out? And Massey's do hard things. Every morning they say that. Massey's do hard things. So when a hard thing happens, they say, well, sounds about right, because Massey's do hard things. Now, I make them say that every morning because I want them to remember that their name demands specific behavior, and I expect that behavior of them. As long as they have my name, that's what I expect them to do. Now, God is far more concerned about his name than I am about mine. God's very clear that he expects his name to be protected. And so, if you're a Christian, you don't only wear the last name of your family. More importantly, you carry God's name with you everywhere you go. And your reputation... The things you do, the stuff you say, communicates how you really feel about that name. So once you're gone, once you're out of the room or off this world, off this planet, what are people going to continue saying about you? Solomon says a good reputation is more important, it's better than getting ahead. But keep moving, verses uh, 5 and 6. It's better to be criticized by a wise person than to be praised by a fool. A fool's laughter is quickly gone like thorns crackling in a fire. This also is meaningless. Second uh, better than statement, what do I do when I don't know what to do? Well, we can always know that correction is better than praise. Correction is better than praise. So let me ask you this. What do you do if you're driving around town and you get lost? You're driving in a city, you get lost, you're stuck in a neighborhood, and you're just kind of doing laps around the neighborhood because you don't know how to get out. But you happen to have two backseat drivers, both giving you conflicting directions about how to get out of the neighborhood. Well, how do you decide which one of those backseat drivers do you listen to? Well, at the very least, I hope you would consider the source, right? If one of those backseat drivers is a tourist and the other one grew up in that neighborhood, Solomon would say, only a fool is going to listen to the tourist. You have to consider the source. 
Now, the same thing is true, much more true, when you're trying to decide, who do I believe? If one person's praising me, one person is criticizing me, which one of those do I accept as valid and true? Well, consider the source. Are they, they have a reputation for being a fool? Do they have a reputation for being wise? Do they tell the truth, even when it's the hard thing to do? You have to consider the source. Don't be in such a hurry to believe all of the headlines and all the things that are said about you. I'm aware that uh, some of the good things that are said about me are not true. They're a little exaggerated. Some of the bad things that are said about me, hopefully those aren't true either. Those are also exaggerated. The truth is somewhere in the middle, and you figure that out by understanding correction is better than praise, and I consider the source when I'm trying to decide what to do with it. What do I do when I don't know what to do? Because the more authority and the more rank we get, the more likely we are to surround ourselves by yes-men. Not even on purpose. Just the far, farther, farther up the ladder you go, you get a bunch of people in orbit around you who just want to tell you that your breath never stinks. Ever. And, and we tend to instinctively surround ourselves with people who tell us what we want to hear. Well, you know, back there, I know you punched an old lady in the neck, but she probably deserved it. You know, or, hey, I know you lost your cool back there, but hey, nobody's perfect. It's no big deal. It's nobody, nobody's perfect. This is the reason why fools tend to run in packs. Fools tend to congregate together and run in packs because they just get together and pat each other on the back. You did a good job. You did a good job. We're all on fire, but we're doing a good job. So you need to ask yourself, when is the last time someone told me what I didn't want to hear? And did I listen? Is anybody in my life telling me the things I don't want to hear? And am I, am I listening to them? Because if you're always the smartest person in the room, then you need a bigger room. So, so how do you get honest feedback? Because it's so hard to come by. Most people don't want to go through the awkwardness, the discomfort of giving you honest feedback. It's such a precious jewel to receive it. How do you actually get it? Well, first of all, you need to understand that all feedback is relevant. All feedback. If it's accurate feedback, then you need to follow it. If it's not accurate, then you need to understand that you're being perceived differently than you think. If someone tells you that you did something and they're wrong, you still need to listen to that. It's still relevant because you're being perceived in a different way than what you think. All feedback is relevant. And second, you need to thank people when they give you critical feedback. And that's all you need to do. Just say thank you. Don't give a defense. Don't give an explanation. Don't launch into, well, you see what happened was. No, just, just say thank you. Receive it and then decide, are they wrong? Okay, then I need to change. Is their perception wrong? Then I need to manage my image. But it's still relevant, and you still need to thank them when they give it to you. And third and finally, you need to learn to be the last person to speak. I recently watched a great video about this, reinforcing this idea of how important it is to be the last person to speak. If you don't want to be surrounded by a bunch of mindless fools who just tell you what you want to hear, then close your mouth, shut up. It's hard to do, I know. And let everyone else speak first. Because once you give your opinion, the tendency is just to reinforce what you said, unless you're surrounded by good, honest people. How do you know if you are? How do you know if the feedback you're getting is honest? Well, first of all, it, it's probably going to line up with your conscience. Assuming that you listen to your conscience and you haven't ignored it for so long that it no longer works, then your conscience is probably going to tell you whether you need to be corrected or praised. But listen. 
God will never let you feel good about doing a bad thing. Never. Another way to know if you're surrounded by honest people giving you honest feedback is, are they willing to let the truth trump your feelings? Paul says here in Galatians, I love this. Have I become your enemy now because I'm telling you the truth? Is that all it takes to be your enemy, just to tell you the truth? Some verses say, have I offended you with the truth? Man, that's just such a vivid verse for today. Some people, if they're honest to you, with you, are going to be willing to, to hurt your feelings if it means telling you the truth. But we all know those people that it doesn't matter how tactical you are in delivering honest, difficult truth. If the core message is they're wrong and they need to change, then you just made yourself an enemy. They're going to get mad at you. And, and the book of Proverbs is full of verses saying those people are fools. They're never going to get better. They're fools. A wise person accepts correction, accepts rebuke, accepts discipline. A foolish person ignores it, shuns it, just wants to laugh and have a good time. Solomon has a lot to say about those people. Third and finally, how do you know if you're getting honest feedback? So what's what's how's your conscience respond? How does it make your feelings? Is it, is it trumping your feelings? And then finally, how does it line up with God's word? This is always the go-to, right? Is it is it coincide with God's word or does it contradict with God's word because good solid honest advice is never going to contradict God's word ever Paul says in Romans if everyone else is a liar God is still true it doesn't matter how many people line up on the side of a bad idea it's still a bad idea and it's a bad idea if it's not God's idea God's word is always right even if it if your conscience is broken because you ignored it for so long God's word wins. Even if it hurts your feelings, God's word wins. Honest people seek good feedback because they know only a fool turns correction away. Solomon would say, correction is better than praise. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Listen to your critics, consider the source, and ask yourself, what do I need to change? All right. Keep going, verse uh, 7 through 9. Extortion turns wise people into fools, and bribes corrupt the heart. Finishing is better than starting. Patience is better than pride. Control your temper, for anger labels you a fool. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Well, you remember that finishing is better than starting. If you're in a tough spot, keep moving forward. Finishing is better than starting. And Solomon needs to say this because there's usually plenty of excitement at the beginning of something. A new project, a new job, a new baby. Those things are easier to get excited about than a 16-year-old kid with an attitude. Excitement is at the beginning. It's easy to be excited about a new marriage. But what matters is finishing those things with integrity. Finishing is better than starting. I don't care how fancy your wedding was, how, how big of a party, how much money you spent. I don't care if your wedding cake was 20 feet tall and a gorilla jumped out. Who cares? All that matters is 50 years later, are you sitting together on the porch holding each other's old wrinkled hands? Finishing is better than starting. Finishing. I, I tell kids that try to get me to marry them all the time. You've heard me say this before. If you want me to marry you, you're going to spend six weeks with me trying to talk you out of getting married. I'm going to tell you everything that could possibly go wrong and all reasons why you are going to want to quit. And if you still want to get married, then maybe I might do it. Because I promise you, you're going to want to quit. You're not going to want to finish. You're going to want to quit. I know. I wanted to quit my marriage, and I'm the ugly one. And I still wanted to quit at times. I'm glad I didn't. 
because finishing is better than starting. Solomon gives us at least two things we do when we try to when we take our eyes off of a good finish. When we're not thinking about finishing well, then verse 7, we start to look for shortcuts. We try to either force or extort other people into doing what we want, or we try to bribe our way to the front of the line. The answer is verse 8. Patience is better than pride. Don't look for shortcuts. Don't try to force your way by breaking the rules or cheating or giving bribes or trying to find a loophole. Listen, Christians don't look for loopholes. We don't do that. Christians don't say, well, who is my neighbor? Who do I really have to love like a neighbor? We don't do that. We know that patience is better than pride. Finishing is better than starting. If another thing that we do when we take our mind off of finishing well, verse 9, is we, we lose our temper and we throw fits, demanding that we get our way right now. I don't want to wait to the end. I want what I want, and I want it right now. Uh, few things show how we really feel, where our faith and our fears really lie, than the way we respond when we don't get what we want. You're not getting what you want from your, your spouse? How are you handling that? You're not getting what you want from God? How are you handling that? You don't get what you want at work? How are you responding through those situations? Are you thinking about quitting? Because finishing is better than starting. Finishing is what matters. Again, verse 8 tells us, patience is better than pride. Patience will get you to the end and help you finish. Patience focused on God and his provision is more important than pride focused on me and my timing. And again, the best example of this is Easter. Finishing is better than starting, and Easter is about a good finish. Christmas is great. Christmas is about a good beginning. It's about potential. It's about a birthday. It's about a start. Easter is about fulfillment. It's about a solid finish. It's about endurance and patience to the end. Jesus endured, and that's why we have Easter and not just Christmas. Finishing is better than starting. All right. Let's keep moving. Verse 10. Don't long for the good old days. This is not wise. I love this one. Solomon is saying, what do you do when you don't know what to do? Well, you remember that today is better than yesterday. Because we get impatient when we don't get what we want when we want it. And, And when that happens, one of the things we're tempted to do is we say, well, let's just quit and go back to the way things were. Because it was better back there. Let's take a holiday in history and reminisce about the good old days. Solomon says, that's not wise. Which is a nice way to say, that's stupid. That's, that's just dumb. Do not say, remember the good old days. Do not say, it used to be better back there. Do not say, things were better back in the day. I, I stomp on that over and over because churches are, are a breeding ground for this kind of defective thinking. Especially established churches because they become full of the good old days brigade. Man, back in the good old days when things were better and the music wasn't so loud and whatever. Stop it. The truth is, this is going to hurt. There are no good old days. Zero. There are no good old days. It's been said that the good old days are a combination of a bad memory and a creative imagination. Because what we tend to do is we think of the good old days only in terms of the stuff that went good, and we we selectively forget 
all of the problems and challenges that were present back in the day. We forget that back in the day, the good old days, listen, they had its own, that, those times, wherever they are for you, they had its, it had its own unique set of challenges and problems. It was hard back then too, just like it's hard now. But for some reason, for some reason, every generation, I'm passionate about this one, every generation for some reason says, we're the golden generation and everything's going downhill after my generation. Evolution peaked with us and these dumb kids, well, they're devolving. They're going backwards. Things are going to hell in a handbasket once my generation handed the reins off. We, we all say that. Oh man, good old days, those were my generation and then things got worse. No, they're not. Listen, you need to chew on this for a while maybe, but things are not getting worse. People are not getting stupider. Listen, they're not getting stupider. They're not getting dumber. The days are not getting more evil. We're just getting more publicized. Everybody carries around a, a movie, movie studio in their pocket, and it's connected to a worldwide publishing house. We're just more publicized. Things are not getting worse. We only think things are getting worse because we see a whole lot more bad because of this thing. But the times are not getting more evil the times have always been evil. Always. And Christians need to hear this because I can give you a million examples. But what happens every winter, right around December or right after Thanksgiving, we start saying there's a war on Christmas. It used to be I could say Merry Christmas. It used to be I could say this. Now there's a war on Christmas. Back in the day, man, it was better. But now there's a war on these Christmas Christian values. Maybe. Only if you consider this. There's been a war on Christmas ever since Herod tried to kill baby Jesus at the first Christmas. All right, then there's always been a war on Christmas. And if you fast forward three decades to the right, to the first Easter, by that time, the government and the church had teamed up and they killed Jesus. So I think he would have a problem with us saying things are getting more evil. No, they've always been evil. There's always been a war on Christmas. There's always been a war on Christian values. That's not changing. And we don't do any good. We don't help anything when we sound this alarm and say the world's getting more evil. No, listen. Theology, good theology says we live in a fallen world. My grandparents did. I do. And my kids are inheriting from me the same fallen world that's been around since Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden. So our Christian, our wise role in all of this is to not be paralyzed by the past or hypnotized by the future. Don't waste a bunch of time dwelling on regret over yesterday. Don't get stuck dreaming about tomorrow. Today is the day. Today is the day. We have work to do. Let's go. If you ever get confused about which direction is better, just ask yourself this orienting question. Which direction is heaven? It's that way. It's forward. So let's just keep working and move that direction. Today is better than yesterday. That will help you every time you're wondering, what do I do when I don't know what to do? Well, I, I need to keep moving forward, putting one foot in front of the other. Today is better than yesterday. Don't long for the good old days. Those don't exist. All right, Solomon gives us two more principles here, and then we'll wrap it up with a conclusion. Two more principles, though. He says in verse 13, Accept the way God does things, for who can straighten out what he has made crooked? A retired baseball umpire was uh, asked one time, 
You ever feel bad about making a bad call? The umpire stopped. I don't know. What do you mean? I don't understand the question. Well, you know, did you ever call a ball a strike or say it was a strike when it was actually a ball and later realize you made a mistake and, and feel bad about it? And the umpire said, it's nothing until I call it. Would you like to have that kind of power in your own life? Like the umpire is God on the baseball field. It's nothing until I call it. To have that own power in your own life, like a bill shows up in the mail and say, it's not a bill until I say it's a bill. I'm not fired until I say I'm fired. Well, that kind of godlike authority is the way we need to view God in the events of our life. Because arguing with God over what it is or what it should be is about as useful as arguing with an umpire in a baseball game. Instead, we just need to accept the way God does things. What Solomon would say. And this, be careful, this is not fatalism. Solomon is not telling us just to roll over, go belly up, and surrender. It's not what he's saying. If you're in the middle of a hard thing and you're doing the right thing, continue doing the hard right thing. And keep doing the hard right thing until something changes or Jesus comes back. It will always be the right thing to do. But if you're asking, what do I do when I don't know what to do? Well, it could be you need to learn how to cooperate with the inevitable. Remember week three? We learned that part of our frustration comes when we stop asking what season of life am I in? Because if we insist on dressing for winter when God is leading us through a season of summertime, then we're going to be uncomfortable. Wise people ask, what season of life am I in? How do I cooperate with the inevitable? Because trying to straighten out something that God wants crooked is just an exercise in futility. So Solomon would say, learn how to cooperate with the inevitable. This is a summary of what we said so far. Solomon would say, stop looking for a fool to agree with you. If you're wrong, correction is better than praise. Accept it. Stop looking for a shortcut or a loophole. That's not what you want to do. Finishing is better than starting. Cooperate with the inevitable. Stop throwing a fit when you don't get your way. Patience is better than pride. Cooperate with the inevitable. Stop saying, back in my day, back in my day. You know what? We're not back there. We're here today, now, so cooperate with the inevitable. And let's just get on with it. Maybe the reason you and I sometimes don't know what to do is because we're not accepting reality. I had a friend at a previous church, and she would often say, accept truth, choose joy. Man, that's such good advice. Whatever the truth is, accept it, and then choose joy. second principle Solomon gives us to wrap this up, verse 14 Enjoy prosperity while you can, but when hard times strike, realize that both come from God. Remember that nothing is certain in this life. I love this verse. You don't hear this kind of talk from many Christian churches and pulpits. Because Solomon is saying, man, enjoy what you can when you can. If it's a good day, enjoy it and treat it like a good day. Be happy. Smile. If it's a good day, fly a kite. Cook a steak. Make love to your wife. Turn up the music. Go for a ride. Roll down the window. Pet the dog. Kick the cat. Man, it's a good day. So let's have a good day today. Don't don't try to bring the past into it and make it a bad day. If today is a good day right now, then let's just make it a good day and have a good day. Look at this wisdom from this, this great country music theologian, Travis Tripp. It's a great day to be alive. I know the sun's still shining when I close my eyes. There's some hard times in the neighborhood. Why can't every day be just this good? 
it's a good when it's a good day in the neighborhood, just make it a good day. Solomon says though, but when it's a bad day, when hard times strike, when it's a bad day in the neighborhood, don't pretend like it's a good day. The appropriate emotion for the bad days is mourn or sorrow. Like bring the appropriate emotion to the bad days as well. Because chances are, this is not the first time you've seen a bad day. It's not your first one. So you can tell yourself, oh, bad day. I've, I've seen this movie before. It's a bad movie. It's a bad day. But I also know that this movie doesn't last forever. This bad day movie is not the never-ending story. This comes to an end. Bad days aren't the only kind of days that I have. There are also good days, too. This just happens to not be one of those good days. Nobody wants bad days, but everybody gets them. Only, listen, only entitled people think they should be exempt from bad days. Only a fool walks outside and thanks God for nice weather and then curses him for rain as if he fell asleep at the wheel on the rainy days. Hundreds of thousands, I don't know, I made that number up, a lot of flights, hundreds of thousands of flights take off and land safely every single day. Nobody praises Jesus for those flights. But one in a million, there's a, there's a tragedy, and we shake our fist at God as if God fell asleep at the wheel. Remember Job and, and Job's wife and the advice that Job's wife gives him? Remember their, the bottom fell out of their life, and it's just getting worse one bad day after another. And into that, Job's wife tells him, uh, Job 2, verse 9, Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Just curse God and die. How about that for advice? There's a Proverbs 31 woman, right? She basically, she tells Job, just give God the middle finger and go commit suicide. Job's response to her is exactly what we're talking about here. Next verse, Job replied, You talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? This comes down to something we've been saying since week five. That if you only trust God with things that you like and things that you understand, then you don't trust God at all. Because when it comes to things that we like and things that we understand, those are playing to our emotions and playing to our intellect. We're not trusting God, we're trusting our feelings and we're trusting our brain. We have to trust him in the good times and the bad. Both of those come from him. Listen, let me say it again because this is so important. If you only trust God with the things you like and the things you understand, then you're not trusting God at all. You're trusting your own emotions and your own intellect. And if you think God should only give you good days because you're a good person, then we need to remember what we did to Jesus and read the next verse. I have seen everything in this meaningless life, including the death of good young people and the life of long life of wicked people. Do I understand why this verse is true? No. Do I like this verse? No. This verse does not touch my, my feelings or my intellect, either of those things in a good way. My, many of you know, my little sister represents the death of a good young person. 
almost 13 years ago, she got cancer and died on a Tuesday at the age of 22. And that sucks. That's a bad day. That's a day for mourning. I don't understand it. Now, does that injustice, that that awful bad day, does that mean that God fell asleep at the wheel? And I, I hope not. Because the God who makes mistakes is far worse than a God whom I can't understand. Do I want a perfect God whom I always understand all the time? I don't know, maybe. But that's not what I have, is it? What I have is a perfect God who is under no obligation to make sense to me. And so if I want peace in this life, I need to learn to cooperate with the inevitable. I need to rejoice on good days and mourn on the bad days. I need to accept truth and choose joy. Let's close with this. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Well, first, keep this in mind. Paul tells the church in Rome, this is all the more urgent now, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Paul says, regardless of how difficult and confusing life becomes, at least this one thing is true. We are getting closer to heaven one day at a time, every single day. Time is winding down, and that's a good thing, because that's drawing us closer to Jesus. The next time you find yourself in a cemetery, take a look at the dates on the tombstones. You will find that they're catching you. When you're a little kid, those dates don't mean anything. But the older I get, those dates are becoming closer to being my dates. Those dates, they're catching up to you. Those dates mean I'm getting closer to Jesus. It means I'm getting closer to a reunion with my sister and my grandmas and, and uh, a few close friends I lost along the way. One way or another, that's happening one day at a time. Either Jesus is going to come back or I'm going to die. Either way, no amount of confusing bad days can change this fact. My salvation is nearer now than it was when I first believed 25 years ago. And when I first believed, something beautiful happened. Jesus promised, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads you into all truth. The world cannot receive him because the world isn't looking for him and the world doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later he will be in you. What's he mean? When is later? What's he mean by that? Well, just a few short weeks after speaking these words, the events of Easter took place and Jesus was crucified and then came back to life. And then a few weeks after that, the book of Acts tells us that he ascended up into heaven and the apostles immediately started preaching this message right here. It's our last verse. Each of you must turn from your sins and turn to God, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is wonderful news because it says that God's Spirit is living inside of me, right here, to lead me to truth when I don't know what to do. In other words, when, when I believed 
and I submitted to this, this verse, and, and, and I, I buried my old person in baptism. When I came up out of the water, I came back up out of the water with more than just fire insurance. I came back up with God living inside of me to guide me when, I, when, I, when I'm asking, what do I do when I don't know what to do? Living inside of me. This is why Jesus' little brother James would come along later and say, if you need wisdom, if you don't know what to do, then ask God and he will, he will tell you what to do. Now, sure, it may not happen immediately. That's why patience is better than pride. Wait on God's timing. He's never late. But if you can't recall vividly when you were obedient to this verse, when you, when you submit it to this verse, then Paul would say, you need to wake up because time is urgent. Time is running out. This is urgent. I would ask you to please pull me aside and let's talk about making this verse your reality so the next time you don't know what to do, you have God's Spirit living inside of you to guide you in that direction. Amen.